So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading the 11th chapter, verses 45 through 52. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. I may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Father, these words are hugely significant to each and every church, each and every Christian, each and every pastor, as we watch both in our time and in your time, your word under attack. And we watch Satan going after it tooth and nail. And for the most part, we watch so many people just standing by and allowing it to happen not even bringing it to the attention that there is such an intense battle going on over your word as our enemy tries. He will never succeed, but he tries to kill the gospel. Lord, may we stand against him so that our children and our children's 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 children can openly and freely understand and know your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the last several months now, we have been talking about spiritual warfare and particularly in the way that it has developed because of the coming of Christ, because of his first advent. And we've used a term to help describe that, the cosmic initiative, almost a military style uh, of attack on the silent planet, a planet that was completely, except for one little light in Palestine, draped in the, the darkness, the falseness of the enemy. Now, we've talked about, first of all, that Jesus came with an objective to dispel, destroy the darkness and to set the captives free. But we have also been talking about the reaction of that darkness. They just didn't roll over and say, okay, sorry, we're out of here. No, the darkness fights back. And we've talked about the methods that Satan uses towards that end as his diabolical countermeasures. Well, this morning we get to really the core of his attack where the hottest fighting is going on. And it surrounds the word of God. It surrounds the word that 
that you have brought or he has brought to this world. Now, the reason we call this a battle and the reason we call it a war is because neither side is interested in making peace with the other. Jesus did not come to make peace with the darkness. He did not come to be tolerant. He came to destroy it once and for all. And he will eventually when he returns. But by the same token... The forces of evil, and I'm talking about Satan and his demons, his minions, and his human agents of evil who do his bidding here on this earth, they they have no intention, even though they may act like it, they have absolutely no intention of living peacefully with the gospel. In fact, they have one objective, and that is to kill the gospel. Now, again, let me tell, let me say this. I, I may say that they want to kill the gospel, but they're never going to achieve that. The gospel will always stand and the gates of hell will never, ever prevail against it. That doesn't mean that the world might be thrown into centuries of darkness because the people of God did not recognize the evil that was around them. And that is one of the things that Jesus is bringing out. In these last three woes. You see Satan understands something folks. He understands that it's one thing to kill the messenger. But it's another thing to kill the message. And if he's ever going to take control of this world again. As he did before Jesus came. He's going to have to kill the message. He's already killed the messenger. Now the Sanhedrin also knew this. They, they, they understood it. Being the agents of evil that they were. Because after Jesus was crucified. This is what we read in Matthew. The next day. That is after the day of preparation. The chief priest and the Pharisees. Gathered before Pilate and said. Sir we remember how that imposter said. While he was still alive. After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure. Until the third day. Lest his disciples go in and steal him away. And tell the people he is risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first they knew before anything that if Jesus rose from the dead if there was an empty tomb they would never get Christianity back into the bottle and so they wanted to kill the message to kill the name of Christ he was already dead but they needed him to stay dead and of course he didn't and that The message began to circulate around the world and it is still alive today. But it is the methodology of evil that I want to bring out this morning. I I, I want to bring out what Satan's plan is, what his strategy is. And his strategy is not just to kill the messengers. He continues to do that. But to kill ultimately the message, to try and kill the gospel. And that is what I think we're going to see in these Three woes that Jesus has. Now, we sort of stopped last week in mid, in, in mid session. There are six woes that Jesus gave. We looked at three of them last week, but let's go back and just reestablish a little bit of the context. Going all the way back to the 14th verse, this whole discussion started when Jesus was casting out a demon and the people confronted him with their unbelief. In other words, that uh, they accused him of working in the power of Beelzebul, who is the devil, and they started asking him for signs. And that is when Jesus launched into the discussion of spiritual warfare, of the, the diabolical countermeasures, and the fact that there was plenty of light in front of them. In fact, he, he began to talk about light and darkness as, a, as the struggle that not only goes on inside the Christian, but in, in, in all of Christianity. And he talked about, first of all, 
called the light and darkness as in the, in the context of salvation. And it depends on the condition of the lamp of the body. What is going to be shined to the inner self. If the lamp, meaning the soul in that context is good, then the body will be filled with light. But if the soul is still a fallen, wicked, wretched, wretched, darkened soul, then it will fill the essence of the person with darkness. And that's when he made that powerful statement that we looked at last week when he said, he says, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. And we talked about how devastating it was. And then he, he begins to give us an example of those who thought they lived in the light, thought that the light in them was actually light, but it was actually darkness. And that's when he began to talk about the Pharisees, what happened is while he was teaching, a Pharisee asked him to lunch and Jesus accepted. And the Pharisee was terribly offended at Jesus because he did not wash his hands before he ate. Now, we talked about that last week. It had nothing to do with hygiene. It had everything to do with ceremonial cleansing, something that the elders had said, a way that you have to clean the hands so you won't be defiled. And so that is when Jesus began to a scathing commentary, remembering that these are his hosts, but a scathing commentary on religious hypocrisy. He compared the Pharisees in general to dishes that were all clean on the outside, but all grungy and gross on the inside. I mean, you make such a nice appearance, but inside you're you're just a, a hypocrite. And that's when the whole conversation turned back to hypocrisy. And Jesus began to unmask these when he began to share these, the first three woes that we looked at last week. Now... When he said that you're like these cups and saucers that are all filled with grossness on the inside, he used two words to describe them. One was they're filled with wickedness, which is an evil intent. It's not just something that happens once in a while. It is their very nature. And then greed. And we talked about that word greed, which meant a rapaciousness. What it meant was that they were literally out to steal the souls of men and women and lead them astray, which is, after all, the, the purpose of their father, as Jesus called them in the 8th chapter of John, their father, the devil. And, and so he's unmasking through these first three um, uh, uh, woes. Now, we defined woe as being a pronouncement of doom, a pronouncement of judgment from a position of regret. In other words, Jesus is not happy. He's not delighting in the judgment that he's leveling on these Pharisees. It breaks his heart in reality. But nonetheless... He needs to tell them true love does not hide things from people, folks. True love is is not politically correct. True love, if someone is headed to hell, true love is telling them that they're heading to hell. And that's exactly what Jesus does with these Pharisees. The first woe was centered around tithing, but he was using that as an example of the pharisaical tendency to major in minors, to, to focus on the minutia of their religion and to ignore the greater issues, which he defined as love of God and justice. And he might as well have quoted the great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Because that's exactly what he's talking about. These are the great things, and you're totally ignoring them because you're stealing the things, the, the very souls from the people, and you're tithing mint and herbs in your garden. 
The second one was focused on the fact that they loved the wrong things rather than loving God and loving the attention of God and blessing God and and living according to his statutes. They loved each other and and they wanted accolades. They wanted the best seats in the synagogue and they wanted to be uh, greeted in an extravagant way in the marketplaces. But it was that third woe that really we kind of focused on because he he called them unmarked graves. And we sort of looked at the imagery there because to walk across a grave was terribly defiling to a Hebrew. You had to go through at least a week of ceremonial cleansing. And normally they would mark the graves, whitewash them so you could see them and avoid them. And Jesus says, not you guys. You you guys make yourself look so good on the outside. You make it look like you're the righteous ones. You're the pious ones. And when you make a proselyte, you're willing to go across land and see to find one. But when you find one, you make him twice as much of a child of hell as yourself. In other words, people are defiled by you and they don't even know it. Because they're trying to live according to your legalistic standards. And that brings us up to the fourth of these, the second set. And the second set is still going to continue to unmask the Pharisees. But at the same time, it is going to reveal one of the primary strategies. Strategies or stratagem. Never mind. One of his plans. One of Satan's primary plans to try and kill the gospel. And those are the three going to be brought out here. So with that said, let's jump into our text because we have quite a bit of it. Verse 45, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher. Now that's politeness. Jesus has just insulted them, but the guy's, you know, he's maintaining that, that, that smile on his face saying, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Well, the reason that the lawyers were insulted is because most of them were Pharisees. And when Jesus insults the Pharisees and Phariseeism, which is what he did, well, by implication, he insults the leaders as well. So I think that, first of all, we need to define, because these three woes are going to be against particularly these lawyers. So we need to define what he means by lawyers. In a narrow sense, the lawyers were the legal arm of Judaism. At least in theory, and only in theory, the constitution of Israel was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of God. Now, of course, they had created so many of their own laws around it that you could barely tell it. But a lawyer's job, if you will, was to be an expert in the law so that he could adjudicate the law when there were um, times of trials. But the idea of the lawyer and the way that Jesus uses it here is a little bit broader than that because there's some crossover. You see, lawyers would also be involved with the writing of the law, the authoring of these rules and regulations, just like the scribes. So there's a crossover between the scribes and the lawyers. You may remember in Matthew, parallel, later on, not the same time, but later on, he's going to say, woe be unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So, so, so part of what it meant to be a lawyer was to be the one that actually wrote the law in the first place. And they also taught the law, which is the realm usually of the rabbis or the great ones. So in other words, there's sort of a, 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 a broad brush here that would include both the lawyers and the scribes and the, the rabbis. So I think it's best to define lawyer here by just saying these are the religious elite. 
Now, why is this so important to us today? The reason is that the closest we are going to get today to these, this group, lawyers, scribes, and, 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 and rabbis, are what I'm going to call the clergy. In the clergy, I'm going to include the theologians. I'm going to include the, the seminary professors. And I'm going to include the army of preachers who take to their pulpits on Sunday morning. These are the clergy. And it's as close as we can get to these lawyers in the way that Jesus means it. Now, the tragic truth, the tragic reality, R.C. Sproul brings this out, <clears throat> is that the, the bulk of the problem in the church, the greatest evil that exists in the church, the worst persecution of the truth, the worst apostasy, the worst hypocrisy, the primary enemies of the true faith of Jesus Christ that exist in the world today and throughout the history of the church is the clergy. And I say that fully knowing that I'm speaking of my own profession. Most of the heresies, most of the trouble, most of the evil, most of what happens that destroys and tries to kill the gospel actually happens through the clergy of the church. So this is very, very relevant to today when Jesus calls out these lawyers. Well, anyway, he calls out these lawyers and that begins these last three woes. Let's look at the first one in verse 46. I'm, yeah, 46. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourself do not touch the burden with one of your fingers. The first part of that we've already talked about. The incredible number of laws and rules that the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes had created to, to be held up as part of their religion. Now, started with good intention. I mean, not all scribes were bad. Ezra was a scribe. So, so not all bad were bad throughout the history. And, and actually, this began so that they would buffer the law of God. That's what they wanted to do, is create man-made laws around the law of God so that you broke the man-made law first before you ever got to breaking the law of God. And, and so it was good intentions to begin with, but somewhere along the line, it reversed. It switched. To where the laws of man became more important to keep than the laws of God. Believe it or not, this comes out of the Mishnah, Sanhedrin 11.3. And it states this, There is greater stringency in respect to the teachings of the scribes than in respect to the Torah. Okay, In other words, what the scribes teach, what the lawyers write, is more important to follow than even the law of God itself. Now, where does that sound familiar for those of you who are familiar with medieval Roman Catholicism, okay? Very much exactly the same thing. But what had happened in this, they had created amazing burdens, burdens that no one could possibly carry. Now, if you were here last week, you know, I read you some of the, uh, of, 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 of the discussion of, of, of part of that, of, of what it meant to wash your hands and how detailed it was. But Leon Morris, who is one of the commentators that, that I like to read, brought this out and he quotes the mission you know, having to do with some 
some of the requirements, and there are reams, volumes. In fact, there's a whole volume of Mishnah called Shabbat. It just talks about what you do and can't do on the Sabbath. But just notice this. This is a Morris reading, uh, I mean writing. On the Sabbath, they taught a man could not carry a burden. He begins to quote the Mishnah in his right hand or in his left hand, in his bosom or in his shoulder, on his shoulder, end quote. Morris continues, but he may carry it, open quote, on the back of his hand or on his foot or with his mouth or with his elbow or in his ear or in his hair or in his wallet, if he carries the wallet mouth downwards, or between his wallet and his shirt, or in the hem of his shirt, or in his shoe, or in his sandal. Now, if you carried a burden on the Sabbath in any of those places, you're okay as far as the law is concerned. That came from Shabbat 10.3, by the way. Multiply this by all the regulations of the law, Morris continues, and ordinary people have a burden beyond bearing even to know what they might do and what they might not do. See, that's the big problem. This wasn't written down. They're supposed to memorize this. They're supposed to know a gazillion, and I'm not joking, a, a tremendous number of laws, and that is what condemned them. That's terribly oppressive. That's the reason that in highly legalistic areas of the world where, where, where the religions are very oppressive and very binding and burdensome, you have such a high rate of, of suicide. People just can't, they just can't live up to that. And so, therefore, that is the first thing that Jesus says. You, you make these incredible rules and regulations that no one is possibly going to keep. But then to make it worse, to make it even far worse, is that you make loopholes for yourself. You, you write the laws. So you write loopholes into the laws that you can keep to circumvent them. But it is important that everybody else keeps the laws that you write. Does that sound familiar? When people make laws that for themselves, but for everyone else to keep. Brothers and sisters, in a Christian context, Christian leaders need to understand something about the law of God. They need to know it. They need to study it. They need to preach it. And they need to live it. We are to be examples of Christ. He is our model. And we will never achieve that level. We will never, ever achieve Christ's righteousness. In fact, we are saved by his righteousness. But we are called to give everything we can, whether you're a leader or just a, a lay person in the pew, to, to imitate Christ as much as you can. Paul says that in the, in the Corinthians. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. I knew a man one time who's one of the best exegetes of scripture that I've ever, ever come in contact with. He was brilliant in the way that he could tie scripture together, but he had a, he had a terrible flaw. And that flaw was that he never preached to himself. He always considered himself to be above his own teaching. And then when he fell into egregious and very public sin, so many people were disillusioned. And, of course, the skeptical world loves that, don't they? Ah, I told you the church was just full of hypocrites, you know. Everyone there is telling you to do things, but they are completely filled with their own hypocrisy. Two of the ways that the enemy tries to kill the gospel. One is by rewriting it to include so many burdens 
Oh, Paul railed against this with the Judaizers. The, the reformers railed against it uh, with the Roman Catholicism. But it exists now today. There are so many of the different uh, uh, divisions or denominations of, of, of religion who are trying to reintroduce all kinds of legalism back into it. I mean, uh, liberalism has completely made it a social gospel. So it's what you do and not the saving power of Jesus Christ. There are many fundamentalists who are out there saying that if you don't do all of these things as well as the grace of Christ, then you're not going to be saved. Roman Catholicism, of course, has said that for centuries. And now even Pentecostalism puts a burden of some kind of spirituality on people that if you're not speaking in tongues, you're not truly saved. That's, that's, that's not the gospel. We are free in Christ. And when Christ sets us free, we are free indeed. And so one way to kill the gospel is to try to fill it with all kinds of burdens. But another way to do it is through the hypocrisy of the leaders who don't keep their own rules, the things that they preach. Because whenever you have that, boy, the world just wakes up and begins to mock the church and Christianity. So we see already in the first woe two ways that the enemy tries to kill the gospel. Let's get into the second one because that's where the bulk of our text is going to be this morning. Look in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they kill them and you build their tombs. Now, I'm going to stop it right there. We'll take this in bits and pieces because it's a lot of bit. What, what is Jesus saying here? What, what is he stating? He's saying that one group of people, the fathers, the, the, the people who lived in the past, they murdered, they killed violently the prophets. Read Hebrews 11 and you'll see some of the way that those prophets were killed. It, it was horrible. But now it looks like Jesus is forming a continuous stream of thought between those who killed the prophet and those who build temples or or, 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 or or tombs for them to be honored in. It doesn't seem like that should go in it, especially since the tomb building part of the funerary um, traditions of Hebrews was was quite pronounced. It was one of the things that they did go to Jerusalem and look at what used to be the Kidron Valley. It's covered with tombs and it's some of the highest priced real estate on the planet. To get a burial spot uh, right outside the eastern gate of Jerusalem. But it, it stems in a way from the same idea that, the, the, that the, the, the Egyptian kings had with those great pyramids and the great tombs that they would build. Of course, on a much smaller level. Probably the greatest tomb that exists in Israel is what's called the Herodium, which was the tomb that... Um, that Herod the Great built for himself. It's just across the valley from Bethlehem. You can actually see Bethlehem from its heights. But they were building tombs for the prophets. And and Jesus makes really just a, a profound statement that that when you build the tombs, you, you are you're right in line with 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 what your fathers did. So what's wrong with building a tomb? What's wrong with what they're doing? What's wrong with the way that they're doing it? Well, I want to take you back to the 41st verse just just very briefly. Because we learned something in that verse. Jesus just kind of threw this in. The Greek was hard. 
But it goes like this. But give his alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. Now, what we talked about that verse meaning was that motives matter. What is in your heart matters. You can go through the actions and if it's a wrong heart, it's a worthless activity. But if the heart is right, you can go through the exact same action and it's it's a good thing. Treasure is built up in heaven. So obviously, in the way Jesus is talking about something that seems like a good thing, the building of tombs, the intent, the motive, the heart is not right in the way that they are going about it. Now, of course, the Pharisees wouldn't agree with this. Pharisees would say, no, hey, listen, we're not doing that. In fact, in Matthew 23, they said, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Oh, but brothers and sisters, they have evil intent on their minds even now. I mean, just look down into the 53rd and 54th verse. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. And so Jesus would say the same thing. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. In other words, you have the exact same intentions to do the same thing to Jesus that your fathers did to the prophets. But here you are building tombs for them and decorating those tombs. So what's the connection? What is the actual connection that makes it so bad? Because look what he says in the 48th verse. He says that you are witnesses. Now that word witnesses actually refers to um, to something that, it, well, it's actually the word for martyr is the underlying word. And it means to bear witness of, to attest something, to affirm something. The reason that the martyrs were killed was because they would not change their witness concerning the will and the word of God and what Christianity was. And they were willing to give their life for their witness. So what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees and these lawyers is that by building the tombs of the prophets, you are bearing witness that you are in collusion with, co-conspirators with, the very fathers who killed them. Even though you would say that you would not. It's a continuous action. Look in the second part of that 48th verse. He says, I'm sorry, yeah, the 48th verse. He says that for they killed them and you build their tombs. It's like there's one thought. They killed them, you build their tombs. So you're all, you're both involved with the same thing. So what is the thing that they're both involved with? Well, I'm not going to tell you just yet. I'm, I'm going to finish the text, but I want you to be thinking about that. What is the connection between actually the violence of murdering a prophet and the seemingly honorable thing? Of building that prophet a tomb. We'll get to it after we make our way through the text. But here's the two things that we know so far. We know that they were building tombs with wrong motives. That there was some kind of hypocrisy in there. Because that's the overriding discussion. And we also know that by building tombs. They were associating and and bearing witness. Of the nefarious work of their fathers who murdered the prophets. Jesus goes in and starts to explain that in the 49th verse. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Now, probably your translation has wisdom capitalized. Uh, Don't think that that what that means is that that is uh, talking about a book called the wisdom of God. You'll look for it and you won't find it because there isn't one. 
You can also look for that quote that Jesus makes in Scripture, and you won't find that either. So that doesn't come out of the Bible. So it is best to take his statement as something along the lines of, in his wisdom, God said. This is the wisdom of God manifest. This is the forbearance of God. This is the patience of God. This is the compassion and the love and the wisdom of God being brought out because he sent apostles and prophets one after the other to warn you of the judgment to come if you did not turn from your evil ways, repent and accept the light that he was placing right in front of you. Okay, that is where he's going to go next when he, when he lumps the blood of all the prophets upon this generation. It, it is going to be because there have been centuries of God sending prophets and apostles to tell them the truth. And one after another, they have killed them. You may recognize the parable that Jesus told, right? The one about the wicked vine dressers or the wicked tenants. Remember that? A man built a, a vineyard and, and then he went away and he waited several years, all his investment. And when it came time for him to start getting the harvest, this is what Jesus said. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his own son to them saying, they will respect my son. And of course, you know, they didn't. They killed the son and threw his body across the wall into the street to rot. And we also know that because of that, after all of that warning, after all of the woes that he had brought on the people, nothing but judgment left. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. He, he's not taking any pleasure in this, folks, because he is going to spend his life reaching out. He came for these people. These are the ones that he came to save, the lost sheep of Israel. And for the most part, they are denying and, 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 and rejecting him. And so when he comes into Jerusalem on his final week, Scripture tells us that he wailed, almost falling off of his Donkey, and he said, when he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it. This is a lament, brothers and sisters. There's no joy in the kind of judgment that this generation is going to face. And he talks about that in the, the next two verses, the last two verses of this second woe. Verse 50. So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. That is a stunning set of verses. Is it possible that all the blood of all the prophets killed from the foundation of the world could be leveled against this group of people? 
we need to define generation first because generation is one of those words, and we've talked about this in the past, where it can be defined in a variety of ways. It can mean different things in different contexts. And the Greek dictionaries are quite good about this because they, they list verses that fit under one definition or another just to help you along. And, and here's the definition of generation in the way it is used here. It is the sum total of those born at the same time, expanded to include all those living at a given time and frequently defined in terms of specific characteristics. Now, if you've been here over the past couple of weeks, then you know that we've talked about generation in the sense of people in all time spans and in all areas who believe the same or act the same, have the same characteristics, the same behavior. Well, that's part of it, as that definition just said. But primarily, Jesus is speaking to the people who are alive at his in his day. And he's made the stunning statement that all the blood from all of those who are innocently killed by those who want to kill the gospel will be leaped upon your head. And tragically, of course, we know that in Matthew they even said that, didn't they? At the trial of Jesus, they cried out, may his blood be on us and upon our children. So, is it possible that this generation can have be so wicked and so evil? There's a couple of things that we need to remember about this. First of all, they are the generation that God chose when he brought his redemptive plan that had been in place since Genesis 3.15, since the foundations of the world, when he brought that to its consummation in Jesus Christ. So this generation is a very privileged generation of that sense. They have had the prophets. They have had the law. They have had the presence, the Shekinah of God. They have the temple. They have the sacrificial system. They have things that nobody else on earth has. And so this particular group of people has been shown more light. We've talked about light and darkness. More light than any other group of people who have ever lived to this point on the planet Earth. And in, in, in other words, they have now the light of Christ standing right in front of them. And they're accusing him of working for the devil and asking for a sign. It's not that they haven't had the light. It's that they're not absorbing the light. They're not seeing the light. And they're actually rejecting the light. And the scripture teaches us that to those who to whom more is given, more will be required. And to those who have been exposed to the greatest revelation, the sin of rejecting it is the most egregious sin and ends up in the unforgivable sin. The ultimate rejection of the Holy Spirit. And we also forget something, just how wicked this particular generation actually was. All of that withstanding. They, 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 don't, they don't just reject, they kill. Okay? Kill John the Baptist. They're going to kill James, brother of John. They kill Stephen in the streets. And now they're going to kill Jesus, the very Son of the living God. They persecuted Peter and Paul and the rest of the apostles. Oh, the last verses of Stephen's great sermon in Acts. Who haven't you killed and murdered and persecuted? 
That is what this generation has done. And remember what Jesus said earlier when he was talking about the men of Nineveh under Jonah and the queen of Sheba? He says these pagans who had just a wee bit of light and who repented and believed, they will rise up against you to condemn you at the final judgment because you have been given more light than anyone else. And so, yes, this is a desperately wicked generation. Now, there's so much to talk about as far as the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And, and, and literally, it, it's 10, 15 minutes worth of, uh, of, of, of very interesting information. So I'm going to delegate that to the after church. I, I would encourage you. There's going to be some interesting things discussed in the after church. But just the very fact that Jesus would call Abel a prophet, in what way is Abel a prophet? He's certainly uh, innocent blood. But who's Zechariah? Which Zechariah is there? There's like 16 Zechariahs in Scripture, and, and, and they don't fit the bill. So, I mean, there's some interesting discussions around here. But there's one thing that I want to point out about Zechariah. By the way, Zechariah, the, the end of the Old Testament Scriptures was Second Chronicles, and that's where we learn about Zechariah, the priest, the, the son of Jehoiada, um, who, who was killed. But I just want you to notice something. Notice who he was killed by. And where he was killed. Not in a back alley. Not by a bunch of pagans. Not in the streets of the Gentiles. He was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. He was killed in the church. Who killed him? The clergy. The clergy of the day. The one who killed him. The ones who are going to kill Stephen. And the ones who are going to kill Jesus. This is a profound um, uh, commentary that Jesus is making. Well, I told you that I was going to step back from this when we got to the end of this woe, and I was going to explain it to you. So, brothers and sisters, what I am about to say is important for you and for the church. So if you're sleeping through all of this, please wake up. Okay? Because this is the connection between what Jesus says, your fathers killed them, and you made their tombs. For just a moment, I want you to forget... That a prophet is a man. I don't want you to think about him as man. Now they were. They were preachers and teachers. Some of them were priests. They had families. They had lives. We know a lot about Moses. We know a lot about Daniel. We know a lot about these men and their lives. But I want you to forget all that. I don't want you to think about them as people. I want you to think about them in their ecclesiastical offices. In other words, I want you to think about them as a prophet and what prophets do. Now prophets are not just those who tell the future. The primary designation of a prophet is a man who is the mouthpiece of God Almighty who says authoritatively, thus saith the Lord. So when the fathers decided to kill the prophets, it's not like they didn't like um, uh, 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 the, the prophet himself. It's, it's not like they, they, they didn't like his personality, that Zechariah just happened to be a jerk and everybody wanted to, to kill him for that. That's not the reason they killed him. They killed him not because of the person, but because of the word that he spoke. So it's not the person that is being killed. It is the word of God. It is the gospel. If we make the word of God and the gospel synonymous because the entire Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ from one end to the other. And if we see that every single time a prophet is killed, that what the devil is trying to do is to kill the word of God. 
But we've already seen something, folks. You can't kill the message by killing the messenger. Because if the message lives and is picked up by other people, then the message lives on and the name lives on. And sometimes the messenger is more powerful when the, when the messenger dies than he is when he's alive. Jesus is perfect example of that. They thought that when they killed Jesus, that they were getting rid of his message, that that would be the end of it. And so they went to the to, to Pilate and said, make sure that you put a guard next to the tombs. And when anybody comes and tries to steal the body, they won't be able to. And then when the, when the guards came back and said, guess what? The tomb's empty because he rised from the dead. They paid him off so they wouldn't tell anyone. Because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that if that word got out, that they're not going to be able to crush the message. So the one voice was silenced, that of Jesus. But then 12 voices picked it up, the apostles. And when 12 voices picked it up, they gave it to 120 voices, the early church. And then 3,000, and then 5,000, and then 10,000, and then more than you can count. Because the gospel began to spread throughout the entire world. So Satan has a new problem, folks. How do you kill a word once it's been proliferated? If I could have just killed it at the beginning, if I could have just killed the gospel when I killed Jesus, then everything would be fine. But now it's out there. What is the best way to kill a a living and vibrant and dynamic word? Build a tomb around it. Memorialize it. Institutionalize it. Start honoring the prophets. Forget about what they said. The word dies because we're going to build marble statues about the prophets. We're going to build beautiful tombs and we're going to decorate them. And we're going to say how wonderful they are. And when we focus on the prophet, the word that they spoke is lost. So if you want to kill the gospel, build a tomb for it. Memorialize it. Institutionalize it. And the word is lost. And and that's the only thing that Satan is worried about. This is the most diabolical of those nefarious countermeasures. It is a way that Satan walks right into the church and destroys the gospel. By memorializing it. People get all warm and fuzzy. They get all choked up when they talk about Jesus, and it's like they've just made a marble statue out of him. And then they walk out of here and they forget everything that he said. And they don't read his word. They don't live by his word. They don't even know his word. And yet they say, oh, I love Jesus. You love a statue of him. You love an idol. You love someone that is not the word because he is the Logos. He is the very wisdom and word of God. And if you are going to follow Jesus, you are going to follow his word. See, that's exactly where Satan is so diabolical in this. Where is this happening, folks? Where's the word being killed? Where's the worst, most egregious hypocrisy and apostasy? Is is it out there in the back alleys? Is it out there in the pagan community? Are they the ones who are twisting and manipulating and destroying and memorializing and institutionalizing the word of God? No, 
It's between the altar and the sanctuary that that's going on. It is in the church. And for the most part, it is being perpetrated by the clergy, the teachers, the theologians, and the pastors who fail to teach the word of God. Pretty heavy woe there, folks, that Jesus gives us. And he moves on to the third one, which is equally as heavy, not as long. Verse 52, woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. A couple of words in there that we need to define if we're going to understand that. First of all, knowledge in and of itself. You go to a dictionary and you ask what knowledge is. Well, it's the cognitive familiarity, awareness, or understanding of the world and its produce, either through observation or study. That's the, that's knowledge. That's what we do as we fill our our, our minds with knowledge. What Paul says, the wrong kind of knowledge can be devastating. In fact, he says this to the Corinthians, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagined that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So obviously, Jesus is not talking about the knowledge of the world that they are hiding It's the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge about God. It's what we know about God. Paul says this in the Romans. Look how different it is. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Solomon famously says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom. And instruction. And then Jesus came along and he made it absolutely clear that he was the one who has come to share that knowledge with us. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. So how do we know what we know about God? Well, the Bible tells us that God is unknowable. By fallen humans. Paul almost quoting Job. Job says this all over. But Paul says this again to the Romans. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? To Timothy. He says he alone has immortality. He alone dwells in unapproachable light. So therefore there is no way that we in and of ourselves can know anything about God. Except what he reveals to us. His revelation, what he tells us about himself, is everything as far as what we know about God. Now, there's two forms. I'm not going to go into this in any detail, but there's two ways that God reveals himself to us. One is through his created world. Paul tells us in the first first chapter of Romans that what can be known about God can be known by what has been made. And so therefore we are without excuse because God has revealed himself, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his eternality, his infinity is all available to us through what has been made. But that's not going to tell us about his moral heart. It's not going to tell us about his compassion and love for us. That's not going to tell us about his salvation and redemption and his plan of redemption that spans human history in order to find that out. We need special revelation. And there is only one place for special revelation. And that is the infallible, inerrant, inspired, revealed, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary 
word of God. Book of Hebrews tells us this. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom also he created the world. So in other words... The only way that we're going to know anything about God, the only way we're going to have the knowledge that Jesus now talks about is through his divine revelation, the word that is written down when Jesus was here. He's the living word. The Holy Spirit came and brought it to the remembrance of the apostles. They wrote it down. It became the written word. We have it now in the 66 books of this Bible. Brothers and sisters, that's where the fight rages most profoundly is over the word of God. So Jesus says, you, this knowledge that you've hidden the key, you, you don't understand what the key to knowledge is. I just want you to imagine what Jesus is talking about as if it's a treasure room filled with the most amazing treasures. The treasure is the word of God. And yet, sometimes the word of God is difficult for us to understand. Remember in Acts when the Ethiopian eunuch was trying to read Isaiah and he didn't understand it, so God sent Philip to explain it to him? We need interpreters. We need people who understand the law, the experts at the law. We need people like these lawyers are supposed to be to have just and correct and faithful interpretations of what Scripture means. But that is also the weakest link, brothers and sisters, because that means that it is able to be manipulated. And that is what Jesus is saying to these lawyers. You've taken that key. You you can't enter into that room. Because there's two things that are involved with that key. On the one hand, you have to have the lamp of Christ shining in your being, and you don't. You're filling your being full of darkness. And secondly, you need the Holy Spirit to illuminate the words on that page, or else they're just words on a page. Otherwise, you can spend your whole life studying the Bible, and you will not understand it. I read them every week. They have marvelous um, uh, world history and putting it in a world context. And they have all kinds of great scholarship, but they don't know the first thing about interpreting it. They get all of their conclusions wrong. And so that's the key. It is the redeemed heart and the illumination of the Holy Spirit and those that God has set aside and called to spend their lives studying that book so that they understand it, so that they can reveal the mysteries, they can reveal the richness, the treasures that are involved. And that's what these lawyers have done. They've set up riddles and mazes and deflections and barricades and all kinds of ways to where you can't even get to the door if you're trying to get there. So therefore we see in these three woes, six ways that the enemy goes about to try and kill the gospel. First of all, by creating burdens making a legalistic rather than a a free liberty, which is what the gospel is. Secondly, hypocrisy among the leaders to show them up for the hypocrites that they are and discourage the world. Thirdly, just out and out, persecute them, oppress them, and if necessary, kill the messenger. It's what they have done throughout history. The bloodletting did not stop with Jesus. It continues right on down today in many parts of the world. Fourthly, If you can't kill the messenger, kill the message. Memorialize it. Entomb it. 
put it put it in marble and 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 that's one way to kill it and then finally both the knowledge and the key to that knowledge hidden in the one sense you don't have it and then so other people can find it you lead them astray so that there is no now this is the, this is the way that satan goes about killing the gospel and what i want to share with you now and i i in closing or ending this thing, I had several different ways I could go. I could have taken you for the first through the first 12 centuries of the church, and I intend to do that in the after church. If you'd like to hear that, stick around, because everything that Jesus has just said will be manifest in those centuries. We call them the dark ages, and they're dark because the the, the strategy that Satan was about actually worked during those centuries, all the way up to the Reformation. But that takes too long, so I'm not going to do that here. And and then the second thing that I was going to do is to maybe go through some of the modern ways that this is manifesting itself. And I realized I wouldn't have time for that. I realized that this is a lot of text. So I kind of want to just jump to the nitty-gritty. I want to jump to what I think would be most relevant to everyone who's here or listening. Brothers and sisters, every war has different levels of fighting. Some of them are skirmishes. Some of them are just scouts going out. But there's always a place where the fighting is the most severe, where it is the most intense. That's where most of the casualties occur. That's where the resources are placed because that it becomes a very vital uh, objective. Sometimes it was just a bridge over a particular river. But that would be a fierce battle where many, many people would be killed. Well, the fierce battle in Christianity, brothers and sisters, surrounds the Word of God. Right now, I mean, it's under the most severe attack that I have seen in history since the first century. I have not seen the Word of God under such attack. Now, there have been plenty of times that it has gone into darkness. But right now, everywhere you turn, the Word of God is under attack. And I could go into many different ways where it is, but I just want to... Focus on one of them. Brothers and sisters, I believe that the one place that the enemy has been most successful in killing the gospel. Again, he's not going to ever do it. He's going to try until he goes into the pit of fire. But sometimes he drives the world into darkness. And the place that he has been most successful in his war against the word of God has been in the Christian home. Let me repeat that. I believe that the place that the devil in his attempt to destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God that he has been most successful in is the Christian home. For all of the history of the church, the Christian home was where children learned about the faith. Their parents and their grandparents taught them. The Bible was read. It was studied. It was always open. It was one of the primary sources of information. And they would spend long hours, not in front of the television, but gathered around a table and the Word of God would be open and the children would be taught about the Word of God. Oh my goodness, how we have institutionalized that. Oh, we have that beautiful Bible entombed in leather, right? 
with all that embossed writing and the, and the deaths and marriages of our loved ones on the inside. But there it sits on the coffee table, just like the Quran does in most Muslim homes. Almost never opened. Brothers and sisters, he has been so successful in, in convincing us. Whether you're, 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 you're a family with children, whether you have grandchildren, whether you have uncles and aunts and parents, whether you have a spouse, whether it's just you by yourself. He has been so successful in convincing us that if we just simply say, I love Jesus, I love the gospel, and I love the Bible, that I don't have to open it. Do I have to give you statistics? Do I have to tell you about the rampant biblical illiteracy within the church today? Where children are growing up and you can ask them a question. Tell me about Moses. And they're going to look at you like you're on a foreign planet because they've never heard the name Moses. Do your parents never do any devotions? Oh, yeah, yeah, they do. We've got these nice little cute books. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not against nice little cute books. But for goodness sakes, brothers and sisters, read the Bible with your children. Read the Bible with your spouse. That's where the key is. That's, that's where the, the, the glory is. It's in the Bible. It's in the Word of God. Let your children, please, let your children see you engaged in an in-depth Bible study. If you come over to our house unannounced and you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with my wife, well, first of all, she's going to have to move all of her stuff off the table. Because it's spread all over it. And you're not even going to have a place to put your cup down. Because she's involved with multiple Bible studies. And all these books are open. But I tell you what. When our granddaughter Isla comes over to play with Kay. And she loves to play with KK. When she comes over, you know the first thing they have to do? Clean all the Bible stuff off the table so they can play. So every time she comes over, she sees evidence That her grandmother is deep into the word. Is that happening at your house? When you gather together to eat a meal. Now, yes, we pray. And yes, you might read a nice little devotion. But do you crack open the word of God? Even if you only read part of a psalm. Teach your children the the need for integrity of the word. It's not being done. And the place that it is not being done is not out there in pagan homes. It is in Christian homes. We are raising an entire generation of biblically illiterate Christian church-going children. Brothers and sisters, there is an all-out fight on the word of God. Accept it if you will. Reject it if you want to. But I, for one... I I don't just think about myself. I don't have a lot of years left. But I think about my children. I think about my children's children. I think about my children's 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 children. And I know enough from history that I have seen these same tactics over and over again that Jesus warns us about. I have seen them in history. And when the devil goes in an all-out war against the word of God, sometimes he plunges the world into darkness. Don't let him do it. Please, stand against the attempt to kill the gospel by studying, by reading, by adoring, 
by reverently sharing the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you, goodness, boy, you hit us between the eyes sometimes. Now, all of us are, are, are in, there, there's no one that cannot look at this and say, oh my goodness, when was the last time I actually pulled the Bible out and shared it with this person or that person? You know, we talk, we, we do many different things. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that those are bad. But dear Lord, the fight is not against devotions. It's not against people. The fight is against your word. And Satan knows that if he can simply make the church roll over and not recognize what he's doing, that he can plunge that society into darkness. He'll never succeed ultimately. We know that. But Lord, I pray for those children's children's children that we will leave behind. That they won't be killed for their faith. That they won't be witnesses in the sense of martyrs because they hold true to the gospel. That you would bring revival instead. And that Satan's attempts to kill it will just be attempts and that you will bring your words and flood it in the hearts of people in this society and in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.